computational chemistry may not be at the top of your concerns. In reality, it's a key to solving some of the world's biggest problems. But it takes massive amounts of computing power, something not everyone has access to. Until now, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is collaborating with Microsoft and Micron Technology to make computational chemistry broadly available to applied researchers and industrial users. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the PNNL scientist leading the effort, Carol Kowalski. So we are trying to bring a new form of executing high-performance uh, computational chemistry software on uh, cloud computing. This is a new way of approaching exascale resources and performing high-level uh, simulations for chemistry needs. So this is at the nexus of theory, uh, computation, high-performance computing and technology. So we basically bring together the teams of the computational chemists, computational and theoretical chemists, computer scientists, and uh, in the industry, we are connecting our software with uh, new technological advances at Microsoft and, and Micron, which allows us to perform really large-scale calculations at the, in the cost and energy efficient manner, right? It's very important because uh, scientific calculations, simulations do not come for free. We have to pay for, for, for many, many aspects of this process, right? So we hope to achieve this goal by, by migrating to, to cloud computing. And what exactly does that involve uh, when you're doing so many calculations via cloud computing? Um, you know, I, I, I naturally just think of, wow, that's a lot to be done on the cloud, but I guess it can handle it. Yeah, it's a very interesting process and at the same way, very complicated. Because uh, what is the cloud computing, first question? It's a kind of pool of the interconnected hardware resources. This might be a server, this might be a computational unit, this might be uh, storage devices. So we have to uh, come up with the algorithms that can make those pieces of the hardware talking to each other to, to achieve the performance, which is pretty close to those exascale machines right now supported by DOE. So they are mostly located at uh, leadership class uh, supercomputing centers, but uh, of course, getting access to those uh, to those machines is really hard. And it's, this is a bottleneck for broad utilization of the computational chemistry software. So we are trying to to address this this issue in, in our project. This might be very important. I mean, aspect of the uh, of this proposal, we want to provide some kind of democratized access to the wide community of the computational chemists to, to, to supercomputing uh, resources. This is, this is very important. Yeah, and, and about that bottleneck. So, you know, there, there are a myriad of projects, I imagine, that the government supercomputers are, are being utilized for and they're being kept busy. Is that one of the main reasons for reaching out for an industry partner such as Microsoft and Micron? That's a very good question. So basically, we believe that uh, with this new technology, with just loose on the horizon, so I'm talking about the high-performance cloud and new by, by Microsoft and uh, new types of the memory systems developed by uh, Micron, uh, we can develop a new class of simulations for the chemistry. We can really operate, uh, we can uh, bring to the picture a very novel uh, ways of utilizing machine learning algorithms, right, which wouldn't be possible if we only relied on the supercomputing resources are LCFs, like uh, exascale machine in, in Argon or Oak Ridge, right? We need to have a steady access to the, to the big machines to basically build those models. 
and you want to be able to jump to the front of the line. That's exactly the point. So basically what we want to achieve through this cloud computing, the merger of the state-of-the-art methods and the cloud computing, we really want to achieve unprecedented level of accuracy in our predictions, which is really necessary to to describe chemical processes, which are very important for the, not only for the industry, but also for the nation economy and for nation safety. Yeah, so let's get down to the actual project itself now that we've gotten set the scene, sort of. Computational chemistry, not a uh, term that many people use, and you're trying to get it out more into the forefront of everybody's day-to-day lives. Can you uh, just explain to me what it is? I imagine it's just instead of actually pouring the chemicals from a test tube, you're actually just having the computer say, actually, this is what would happen. (laughs) Yeah, I will give you – I will be trying to give you as crisp answer as I can, but (laughs) – chemistry what we mean is a set of algorithms which are deeply rooted in the in the postulates of quantum mechanics because the quantum mechanics uh, really governs uh, most of the let's put this 99,99 percent of the of the processes we are we are interested right so computational chemistry is trying to describe the the properties and behavior of uh, molecules of you know of chemical processes using those laws of the quantum mechanics. So how it looks in practice, those laws, equations, are translated in, into the code. And uh, my main interest is to develop the parallel codes, which can help us in, in minimizing the time to solution. We don't want to wait years or decades to get the number, one single number, for example. Right? We want to get this information uh, within uh, maybe day, within maybe hours, and if we have uh, big machines or supercomputers or high-performance cloud, we want to get within a minute. This is the goal, to get the answer as quickly as we can. So, as I said, this is a very complex problem, right, to solve, and there are several aspects which have to be addressed at the same time. This is a kind of challenging part of the of the of the uh, of the of the project because we are involved so many aspects. We have to address so many aspects to make it working that uh, this will require the the concerted effort of of the group of thirty people, around thirty people. Yeah, and something that could shorten that timeline, I imagine, are the are AI and machine learning aspects of Microsoft's and Micron systems. What role will they be playing in this process? Exactly. So this is um, this is a very interesting workflow because we should see this as a as a workflow. So. We are using each technology for a different purpose, actually. We are planning to use uh, Microsoft uh, High Performance Cloud to generate high-quality, high-accuracy data for the machine learning and AI procedures, while the whole training machine learning uh, uh, algorithms are going to be executed using the Micron technology. They came up with the kind of novel solution for the, for the memory, computer memory, and for if you want really to train, use this ML, machine learning models effectively, you have to be able to process a huge amount of data, and it takes a lot of memory. Now, Micron has this new technology which offers a huge memory we can play with, and we can get pretty fast access to the data residing in that memory. So this is kind of a game changer. If we put all those pieces together, I guess we can define some new form of the chemical uh, simulations, we actually have a name for that. This is uh, computational chemistry as a service. So uh, many groups without access to supercomputing resources can use the service to perform large-scale calculations. 
So looking at timeline here, what are we looking at as far as, you know, people coming to you and saying, hey, I have this highly complex uh, algorithm and problem that I'm looking to try and put into a supercomputer and see what <laughs> see what kind of chemistry happens from it. Are we at that stage currently or have we reached it yet? What, what are we looking at here? So we are in the kind of uh, prototyping phase. Uh, there's several things we have to really address before we go uh, broad, uh, broadly with the, with the broad uh, community of, for example, code developers, right? But we want to have, what we really want to achieve in two years, we would like to make the infrastructure ready for the people to, to chime in. So basically, use as a sandbox for all the people who are really having interest in large uh, simulations and chemical processes. So the first two years, we will focus mainly to provide uh, efficient tools to make sure that uh, we provide the most efficient utilization of those cloud systems. And then once we have the optimized infrastructure, we'll let people to use it. So we have two group of users, the developers, who will be able to use uh, cloud computing for development of the models. And the other class of uh, users are the you know, application scientists which will be using uh, the software we are going to enable on the on the cloud to run uh, large-scale simulations. Carol Kowalski, a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. You can find this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to 
enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program. 
that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So 
one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.